The prophet Jeremiah spoke to the kingdom of Judah for something like 40 years, and they didn't listen. He warned them about judgment to come, and they didn't listen. He told them that the Babylonians were going to conquer them, and they didn't listen. He told them that the best thing they could do was not fight against the Babylonians, but surrender to them. He didn't, they didn't listen to Jeremiah. And it all happened exactly like the word of the Lord promised through the prophet. Now, that's all behind us at this point in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 39 describes the terrible catastrophe of the fall of Jerusalem, where the Babylonians came and destroyed the city, and after they destroyed the city, they exiled. They carried away as forced refugees, forced captives, anybody who had any kind of value. The only people left behind were the poorest people in the land, the most ill-educated and useless people, and then the really clever ones who could hide out in the hills so that they could escape capture. That was it. Those are the only ones left in the land. Now, kind of it's a, it's a bit of a rage, a bit of a fad in our culture at large. The kind of post-apocalyptic book or movie, you know, uh, Hunger Games, Mad Max, you know, that kind of thing where some terrible catastrophe has happened to society and now people have to function afterwards and what do they do? That's a little bit of what begins in Jeremiah chapter 40. The catastrophe has come. Now, where is God after the catastrophe has hit? Let's take a look at this together. Jeremiah chapter 40, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah, where he had taken him bound in chains among all who were carried away captive from Jerusalem and Judah, all who were carried away captive to Babylon. This word came to Jeremiah after the Babylonians had conquered and destroyed Jerusalem and the surrounding area of Judah. Once Jerusalem was conquered, Jeremiah was briefly gathered together with the other captives until they understood who he was, and then they allowed him to stay behind. That's what verse 1 says, among all who were carried away captive from Jerusalem and Judah. But look at what happens next in verse 2. And the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, The Lord your God has pronounced doom on this place. Now the Lord has brought it and has done just as he said. Because you people have sinned against the Lord and have not obeyed his voice, therefore this thing has come upon you. And now look, I free you this day from the chains that were on your hand. If it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, then come, and I will look after you. If it seems wrong for you to come with me to Babylon, remain here. See, all the land is before you. Wherever it seems good and convenient for you to go, go there. Now notice this. This man, known as the captain of the guard, who's a Babylonian. He's not a Jew. He's not from Judah. This Babylonian looks at the whole situation, and he comes up to Jeremiah and goes, You're Jeremiah, aren't you? Yes, I'm Jeremiah. You're the guy who prophesied the fall of Judah, aren't you? You're the guy who told them to surrender to the Babylonians, aren't you? Yes, that's me. He goes, Listen, I know that you're a man of God. I know. Verse 2, The Lord your God has pronounced this doom on this place. He knew of Jeremiah. He knew of his prophecies. He knew that this was the judgment of Yahweh against his people. Why? Verse 3 says, because they had sinned against the Lord. 
You know what I find fascinating about this? The Babylonian captain of the guard believed more in the word of Yahweh than the people of Judah did. Isn't that crazy? But you have it that way, isn't it? Sometimes people who are brand new to the faith, sometimes people who are unbelievers can have more of an instinctive trust in God than those who carry the name believer. In any regard, look at what he says here, verse 4. The captain of the guard tells him, I free you this day from the chains that were on your hand. Jeremiah, you are a free man. We're taking thousands of captives bound back to Babylonian. But listen, Jeremiah, you're not one of them. Verse 4, if it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, come and I'll look after you. Jeremiah, you can have a pretty good life in Babylon. I'll look out after you. I'll make sure that you're accommodated well. I'll make a good place for you among the Babylonians. But you don't have to. Look at verse 4. If it seems wrong for you to come with me to Babylon, then remain here. Jeremiah had a rare choice. The ones who went to Babylonia with the uh, conquering army, they generally didn't have a choice about it. And they generally didn't have a promise that they would be well taken care of. But Jeremiah had this promise. So what are you going to do, Jeremiah? You've been saying for decades that the Babylonians are going to conquer. Now they did. Now you can go back to Babylon with the other exiles, but you have a promise that you'll be taken well care of there. What are you going to do, Jeremiah? Look at what Jeremiah does, starting at verse 5. Now, while Jeremiah had not yet gone back, Nebuzaradan said, Go back to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon made governor over the cities of Judah and dwell with him among the people. Or go wherever seemed convenient for you to go. So the captain of the guard gave him rations and a gift and let him go. Then Jeremiah went to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, to Mizpah and dwelt with him among the people who were left in the land. I like that phrase in verse 5. Look at verse 5. While Jeremiah had not yet gone back. Apparently he was lingering. I can go to Babylon. I'll be well taken care of. I can stay here in Jerusalem and Judah. What am I going to do? And apparently he's thinking about it. And just the indecision told the captain of the guard everything he needed to do. Verse 5, he says, you go back. You dwell among the people. He sensed that Jeremiah really wanted to say, stay. And the captain of the guard voiced what seemed to be his choice. You go, you stay, and you align yourself with this man, Gedaliah who was a Judean man who was going to be the new governor over the province under the direction of the king of Babylon. Now, you know what's interesting about this man, Gedaliah? He had nothing to do with the royal family of David. (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar was done with the royal family of David. Those people that he had appointed from the royal family of David to govern over the land or to be a king in his place, they had stabbed Nebuchadnezzar in the back again and again. He was done with them. He picked someone from outside the family. This man, Gedaliah, you are going to be my appointed governor over the area. Now, by the way, just something for your information. A few ancient seals with Gedaliah's name from this very period have been discovered. It's kind of thrilling. This is one of the men in the Bible that they have actual archaeological evidence of his name, of his seal, appearing in history. This man, Gedaliah, who was the governor of the land. So notice what happens next, starting here in verse 5. It says that the captain of the guard gave him rations and a gift and let him go. By the way, isn't this amazing? Jeremiah is treated better by the Babylonians than he is by his own countrymen. His own countrymen throw him in jail. His own countrymen throw him into a pit. 
His own countrymen yell at him. His own countrymen do terrible things to him. But the Babylonians take good care of him. And, but what does Jeremiah decide to do? Verse 6, he dwelt with him among the people who were left in the land. You know, friends, I find this amazing. Jeremiah could have had a pretty good life among the other exiles in Babylon. The Babylonians would have taken care of him. But no, Jeremiah said, no, I'm going to stay in the land. I'm going to stay with the people of God. Even though they are in a low estate, even though they're weak, I'm not going to go to the place that's more comfortable, where I could have easier life. I'm going to do the tough thing, and I'm going to stay behind. Now look what happens next, verse 7. And when all the captains of the armies who were in the fields, they and their men, heard that the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, governor of the land, and had committed to him men, women, children, and the poorest of the land who had not yet been carried away captive to Babylon, then they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah, Ishmael, the son of Nehaniah, Jehanan, and Jonathan, the sons of Cariah, Sariah, the son of Tanumeth, the sons of Epoth, the Nephilthite, and Jerazan, the Maconite, and their men. And Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, took an oath before them and their men, saying, Do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. As for me, I will indeed dwell at Mizpah and serve the Chaldeans who come to us. But you gather wine and summer fruit and oil and put them in your vessels and dwell in your cities that you have taken. Okay, a few things to notice about this section, verses 7 through 10. First of all, come on, did you notice all the difficult names in that section? (laughs) Now, I don't want anybody to give the wrong idea. I really don't know how to pronounce those names. I just follow the own thing that I say to teachers and preachers. Just say it confidently and like you know what you're doing. And, you know, people think you know what you're talking about. So I, I don't know exactly how to pronounce those names, but those guys mentioned in those verses. The second thing I want you to notice is this. Notice verse 7, it describes the captains of all the armies who were in the fields. Who was left when the Babylonians took away the exiles, the poorest of the land, and guerrilla fighters? Guys who had escaped and went back into the hills. Some of them were officers, some of them were soldiers. And once the Babylonian military left, these guys reassembled and came to Gedaliah. And they go, Gedaliah, what are we going to do? Are we going to launch a little guerrilla warfare here? Are we going to get along with the Babylonians? What are we going to do, Gedaliah? You see, they heard, verse 7, that the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah the son of Ahikam the governor of the land. They were wondering, should we keep fighting for an independent Judah or should we submit to the Babylonian dominion? That's the big question. Should they carry on a guerrilla warfare? Or should they submit to the Babylonians? What did Gedaliah say? Verse 9. Do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. That's what Gedaliah said. He said, guys, listen. If we serve the Chaldeans, God will honor it. God will bring us out of captivity in his appointed time. Let's just submit to the Lord on this. Let's just submit to God's judgment and not worry about it and see what God will do. We'll serve them as we should. We'll pay our taxes. Look at verse 10. Gather wine and summer fruit and oil and put them in your vessels and dwell in your cities. Guys, chill out. Do your work. Pay your taxes. See what God does when you have a simple obedience. Get a lie is telling them, don't start up a guerrilla insurgency against the Babylonians. But look what happens. Verse 11. 
Likewise, when all the Jews who were in Moab among the Ammonites and Edom and all who were in the countries heard that the king of Babylon had left the remnant of Judah and then he had said over them, Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, then all the Jews returned out of all the places where they had been driven and came to the land of Judah to Gedaliah and Mizpah and gathered wine and summer fruit in abundance. Once the situation is stable in Judah, the smoke has cleared from the apocalypse. The catastrophe is settling down a little bit. Then those Jews who got out of Jerusalem when things started getting bad and went over to the neighboring countries like Moab and Edom, they said, maybe we can come back. Maybe it's going to be okay. And they did. And they started paying their taxes and they started living their lives. Now, in the midst of this, look what happens in verse 13. Moreover, Johanan, the son of Kara. And all the captains of the forces that were in the fields came to Gedaliah at Mizpah and said to him, Do you certainly know that Baalist, the king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, to murder you? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, did not believe them. So what happens in verse 14? Well, Gedaliah, the Jewish man who was appointed the governor over conquered Judah by the Babylonians, he gets wind of an assassination plot that Baalus, the king of the Ammonites, has sent a man named Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, to murder him. Some of these officers of the guerrilla forces said, this is what's going to happen. Now, one thing I got to say, and I, I won't get into it deeply. This fellow Ishmael, who was supposedly to be the assassin against Gedaliah, he was of the royal family of David. He may have been quite disturbed that he was passed by for the governorship and that it was given to Gedaliah instead. Maybe that was his motive. By the way, according to the Bible commentator Charles Feinberg, the Siran bottle that was excavated in Jordan bears the name of this Baalus, the king of the Ammonites, that's mentioned in verses 13 and 14. And you're seeing there a picture of the Siran bottle, which apparently has this inscription. But notice this, verse 14, here's the payoff. Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, did not believe them. Gedaliah didn't believe the report. Gedaliah, there's this man, he wants to assassinate you. Baalus, the king of the Ammonites, has hired him. What are you going to do? Listen, I don't believe it. We don't know why he didn't believe it. Gedaliah seems to have been a good-natured man. And you know what some of the problem is can be with a good-natured man? He believes other people are good-natured as well. In any regard, Gedaliah didn't believe it. Maybe he knew this fellow Ishmael personally and couldn't believe that he would do it. We don't know why exactly, but verse 14 says, Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, did not believe them. Now verse 15 Then Johanan, the son of Kara, spoke secretly to Gedaliah at Mizpah, saying, Let me go, please, and I will kill Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and no one will know it. Why should he murder you, so that all the Jews who are gathered to you and would be scattered, and the remnant of Judah perish? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, said to Johanan, the son of Kara, You shall not do this thing, for you speak falsely concerning Ishmael. Do you get a little sense of this man, Gedaliah? He's a good man. He really wants to govern Judah the best that he can and do good for Judah, even after the catastrophe that's come upon them from the Babylonian conquest. And when he hears of a murder plot against him, he goes, no, 
I know this guy or I've heard of him. It can't happen. Even when a ninja assassin says, I'm gonna, I'll take him out for him if you want me to. He said, no, 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 don't you dare do that. We're going to be good. Don't go out after him. Now, um, I don't want to give you a spoiler or anything. Has anybody got a clue what happens in the next chapter? Let's go to chapter 41. Verse 1. Now it came to pass in the seventh month that Ishmael the son of Nethaniah, the son of Eliashama, of the royal family and of the officers of the king, came with ten men to Gedaliah the son of Ahikam at Mizpah. And there they ate bread together in Mizpah. Then Ishmael the son of Nethaniah and the ten men who were with him arose and struck Gedaliah the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, with the sword and killed him whom the king of Babylon had made governor over the land. Ishmael also struck down all the Jews who were with him, that is Gedaliah at Mizpah, and all the Chaldeans who were found there, the men of war. Would you please notice a phrase in verse 1? They ate bread together in Mizpah. In ancient Eastern culture, and it's still present in modern Eastern culture, but in ancient Eastern culture, there was a sacred understanding that when you ate bread together with a person, and by the way, bread is used there a little metaphorically. They had more than bread. When you ate a meal together with a person, when you sat down together and you ate out of the same dish, there was a bond of hospitality and courtesy that was made between those people that could not be broken. An ancient reader would read this and gasp. He ate bread together with him, and then he did what? Well, I'll tell you what he did. Look at verse 2. He arose and struck Gedaliah. Ishmael and his ten men murdered the governor that was appointed by the king of Babylon, as well as murdering all the Jews who were with him and all the Babylonian soldiers, the men of war who were there to protect the governor. They must have done it well. They must have done it cleverly. They had it planned out. They positioned themselves rightly. Nobody saw it coming. Gedaliah took no unusual precautions. He, he was in this regard foolish. He was too trusting. And they were all struck down in a moment. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to... All this happened in the plan and the providence of God. God was not, uh, uh, you know, taking a vacation while these things happened. But, but nobody could have faulted Gedaliah for taking proper precaution. You know, sometimes this is a very practical thing in life. Um, to take proper precaution. Do, do, do you believe God will protect you and take care of you? Yeah, but you don't leave your keys in your car when you go into the market for an hour, do you? Oh, what? I thought you trusted God. But, but you take just common sense precautions. You, you lock your doors at night. You, you, you just do things sensibly. And, and if Gedaliah was guilty of anything, God bless him, this good-hearted man. He just didn't take some common sense precautions that he should have. And what a massacre. Gedaliah struck down by the sword. The, the men who were with him struck down. The, the, the Babylonian guards, all of them. It was a massacre at Mizpah. Can you imagine the violence? Can you imagine the, the shock and the surprise? But you know what? It gets worse. Look at verse 4. And it happened on the second day after he had killed Gedaliah. They're still there two days. They're, they're camped out there among the dead corpses of all the people they murdered. 
They stayed there at Gedaliah's encampment at Mizpah. It happened on the second day after he'd killed Gedaliah when no one yet knew it that certain men came from Shechem, from Shiloh, and from Samaria. Eighty men with their beards shaved and their clothes torn, having cut themselves with offering and incense in their hand to bring them to the house of the Lord. Now Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, went out from Mizpah to meet them, weeping as he went along. And it happened as he met them that he said to them, Come to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. So it was when they came into the midst of the city that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, killed them and cast them into the midst of the pit, he and the men that were with him. What a bloodthirsty animal this Ishmael was. They're camped out for two days there among the dead corpses of Gedaliah and his crew there at Mizpah. Then come a group of about 80 men from different cities from the north. Shiloh, Shechem, Samaria. They come from these different cities. And we have this fascinating picture of apparently there were faithful Jews remaining as a scattered remnant We don't know much about these guys. We don't know when they were there. We don't know if they were a a, a remnant that survived the fall of of, uh, Samaria and the northern kingdom 135 years before. We we don't know if they emigrated out from the southern kingdom. We we don't know exactly. Maybe under the reforms of Josiah they came back to the fold. We don't know. But these were men from the northern cities there outside of Judah in what was formerly the kingdom of Israel, the northern ten tribes, coming down. And they're coming to Jerusalem They know the city is conquered. They know the temple is destroyed. They come bringing not animal offerings, but the Hebrew there is very specific. They bring grain offerings. And they're going to come and probably at a makeshift altar at or near the site of the destroyed temple, they're going to honor Yahweh and sacrifice to him anyway. These guys are fascinating. It says that they trim their beards and cut themselves which were pagan displays of mourning. So they, they have this kind of weird mixture of wanting to honor Yahweh, yet still clinging to pagan customs. Yet nevertheless, they're going to make the long journey. They're going to go to Jerusalem. And as they're on their way to Jerusalem, they stop at Mizpah, and they want to pay a visit to Gedaliah. They're going to honor him. He's the governor of the land. And what does Ishmael do? Oh, friends, you noticed it when I read it. What did Ishmael do? It says that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, verse 6, went out from Mizpah to meet them, weeping as he went along. Oh, those crocodile tears of that wicked, wicked man. Oh, he's weeping for them. Oh, isn't it terrible what happened to Jerusalem? Isn't it terrible? Oh, you come from so long. You're going to honor Yahweh there at Jerusalem. And what did he do? He massacred them just as he massacred Gedaliah and his men. These completely innocent men whose only crime was to discover the crime of Gedaliah. He killed them and he cast them into the midst of a pit. No doubt it was an empty cistern used for storing water that they cast them into. So verse 8, what happens next? But, but ten men were found among them who said to Ishmael, Do not kill us for we have treasures of wheat, barley, oil, and honey in the field. So he desisted and not kill them among the brethren. Now the pit into which Ishmael had cast all the dead bodies of the men whom he had slain because of Gedaliah was the same one Asa the king had made for fear of Basha the king of Israel. Ishmael the son of Nethaniah filled it with the slain. 
Then Ishmael carried away captive all the rest of the people who were in Mizpah, the king's daughters, and all the people who remained in Mizpah, whom Nebuzadaran, the captain of the guard, had committed to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. And Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, came and carried away the captives and departed to go over to the Ammonites. You see what happens here? A few men survived the massacre by saying, we'll pay you off with the treasures that we brought. Ishmael says, okay, but I'll take you captives. I'll take all your stuff and I'll sell you as slaves to the Ammonites. So he gathered up everybody he could from Mizpah, even some people who were apparently connected to the royal family of David, and they came and they brought them to the Ammonites. This man, Ishmael, is a despicable pirate. Now, I just want you to understand something right here. Pause. He said, why have we even been told this? I mean, it's a, it's a good, bad story, isn't it? I mean, this would make a good movie. It's a good, bad story. Why are we told this? Listen, do you sense the chaos after the catastrophe? What was the catastrophe? The fall of Jerusalem, the conquest of Judah by the Babylonians. What could have been a very settled life leading into a rebuilding and a restoration if they would have all submitted to Gedaliah and gone for that, that's how it could have been. But it wasn't that way. The people were so wicked and rebellious that there was utter chaos. And the people of the land feared for their lives. Can you imagine what it was like to live in that area if you were one of the poor remnant left behind once you heard this story? How could you guard yourself? How could you protect yourself against a guy like Ishmael in his marauding band of vicious murders? You knew that you would be next. So keep that in mind. The purpose of this text is to tell us about the chaos that followed the catastrophe. Now look in verse 11. But when Yohanan, the son of Kara, and all the captains of the forces that were with him heard of all the evil that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had done, they took all the men and went to fight with Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and they found him by the great pool that is in Gibeon. So it was when all the people were with Ishmael saw Johanan, the son of Kareah, then all the captains of the forces who were with him, then they were glad. And all the people whom Ishmael had carried away captive from Mizpah turned around and came back and went to Jehanan, the son of Kariah. But Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, escaped from Jehanan with eight men and went to the Ammonites. It's a little bit tragic, verse 11, that Johanan, the same man who warned Gedaliah about Ishmael, that very same man, discovers the massacre at Mizpah and sets out after Ishmael and finds him and is ready to capture him when what happens? All these captives, all these people that he had taken as slaves that he would sell to the Ammonites, they started running towards their savior, Johanan. And in the confusion of it all, Ishmael and 10 men escape. They get away. It says, verse 15, that they escaped from Johanan. Well, what happened? Notice here, next, verse uh, 16. Then Johanan, the son of Karah, and all the captains of the forces that were with him took from Mizpah all the rest of the people whom he had recovered from Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, after he had murdered Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the mighty men of war and the women and the children and the eunuchs whom he had brought back from Gibeon. And they departed and dwelt in habitations at Kimnon, which is near Bethlehem, as they went on their way to Egypt because of the Chaldeans, for they were afraid of them. 
Because Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had murdered Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had made governor in the land. What does Johanan do? He gathers up everybody he can. Let's get as many of this remnant as we can. We'll rescue as many as we possibly can. Let's all get together, and we're going to Egypt. We'll be safe in Egypt. Now, what were they worried of? Look at verse 18. It says, for they were afraid of them. They were afraid of two things. Number one, they were afraid of the violent, chaotic situation of men like Ishmael. You just knew that Ishmael would be at your door next with a knife and a sword and murder your whole family. That's number one. Number two, they were afraid of the Babylonians. Why were they afraid of the Babylonians? They were afraid Nebuchadnezzar's gonna hear your governor's been murdered and Nebuchadnezzar's gonna go wipe them all out, kill them all, destroy them all. That's what they're afraid of. So they say, we're going back to Egypt. We're going to be safe in Egypt. We're not safe here in Judah. We don't want to go to Babylon. We'll be safe in Egypt. Has everybody got that straight in their mind? Think about that as we look at our last chapter here this evening, Jeremiah chapter 42. This is where it gets fascinating. Verse 1. Now all the captains of the forces, Johanan the son of Kerah, Jezaniah the son of Hoshaniah, And all the people from the least to the greatest came near and said to Jeremiah the prophet. Oh yeah, remember him? I thought this was the book of Jeremiah. Where's Jeremiah? Well, Jeremiah's here. They came to Jeremiah the prophet. Please, let our petition be acceptable to you and pray for us to the Lord your God for all this remnant since we are left but a few of many as you can see that the Lord your God may show us the way in which we should walk and the thing which we should do. Now you read those first three verses, and do you have the same reaction I did when I first read them? You go, this is beautiful. They're scared of the chaos. They're afraid of Ishmael. They're afraid of the Babylonian reprisals. They, They think they should go to Egypt, but they're not sure. They just want God to show them. So what do they do? They do what it seemed like the people of Judah never did in the 40 years before the fall of Babylon, before the fall of Jerusalem. They came to Jeremiah, the prophet said, Jeremiah, what should we do? Jeremiah, would you pray for us that God would guide us? We just want to do God's will, Jeremiah. Would you pray for us? Now, friends, from the first three verses, doesn't that sound wonderful? Doesn't that sound amazing? It says, verse two, please let our petition be acceptable to you. Verse three, that the Lord your God may show us the way in which we should walk and the thing which we should do. Would you do pretty good with that as a motto for the year 2016? Oh Lord, show me the way in which I should walk. Show me the thing I should do. That's pretty good, isn't it? I I was going to make a cultural reference to Colombo. But half you people don't even know who he is. All you young people, you, don't, you have no idea. But Columbo would question, goes, there's just one thing I don't understand. <laughs> there's just one thing I don't get in the midst of this. Go ahead, look it up on YouTube or whatever. <laughs> A TV detective, okay, and he had these idiosyncrasies. There's one thing I don't understand about this. These people didn't mean it at all. 
Now, you can't tell from that verse, but you can tell from what happens later on. And ladies and gentlemen, on the surface, this was a great prayer to pray. On the surface, but it's got to go deeper than the surface. They came to Jeremiah saying, oh, we just want to know what God's will is. But they had already decided what God's will was, and they just wanted to be confirmed in it. Now, that wouldn't be any of us, would it? What a common thing that is to do, isn't it? What a difficult thing it is for us to really empty our heart and say, have your own way, Lord. Not my will, but your will. Truly and sincerely. Oh, it's great words to say, but you really got to have it true in your heart. Let me give you a couple quotes. One from F.B. Meyer. He says, it is useless to profess our desire to know God's will whilst in our secret heart we are determined to follow a certain course, come what may. How often do believers ask for a prayer that their course may be made clear when in point of fact they've already decided on it and are secretly hoping to turn God to their own side. And G. Campbell Morgan said something similar. It is possible to deal deceitfully with our own souls. We do so as these people did whenever we ask for divine guidance, having previously decided as to what our course of action is to be. Such praying is only a superstitious activity. When prayer is conceived of a means of getting our own desires fulfilled, it is superstition. Well, let's see how Jeremiah handles this. Verse 4. Then Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I have heard. Indeed, I will pray to the Lord your God according to your words, and it shall be that whatever the Lord answers you, I will declare to you. I will keep nothing back from you. Kind of an interesting prayer. Is it? You can tell Jeremiah sensed that the words did not truly reflect their heart. I got good news for you and bad news for you. What do you want first? You want the good news first? Here's the good news first. When you pray, God really knows your heart when you pray. Isn't that good news? Because sometimes, I don't know the words to say. Sometimes my heart is a jumble, but I just pour it out to God. That's good news. Now I've got some bad news for you. You want to know what the bad news is? When you pray, God sees your heart. And the, the spiritual words you pile one upon the other, Throw in a little bit of King James English so it sounds really good. Listen, God sees right through it if it's not from the heart. Jeremiah must have sensed this. He goes, I'll pray to the Lord God according to your words, verse 4. And then he says in verse 4, I'll declare it to you. I'll keep nothing back from you. Okay, so what's going to happen? Verse 5. So they said to Jeremiah, let the Lord be true and a faithful witness between us. If we do not do according to everything which the Lord your God sends by you, whether it's pleasing or displeasing, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we send you that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. (laughs) Jeremiah, we pinky swear we're going to do whatever the Lord tells you we should do. 
will swear in a stack of Bibles. I double dog swear, whatever you want to say. Man, they're, they're really piling. Well, the, what's it say there in verse 5? Let the Lord be true and faithful witness if we do not do according to everything. Verse 6, whether it is pleasing or displeasing, you just tell us the truth, Jeremiah, and we'll do whatever the Lord says. Verse 7, and it happened after 10 days that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Stop right there, 10 days. Long time or short time? Well, you know, um, 10 days, look, you look in the past, and it's like 10 days goes like that. I mean, 10 days ago, what's today, uh, January 6th? 10 days ago, it was hardly after Christmas. Doesn't Christmas seem a million years ago? I mean, it's like, so in the past, 10 days is nothing. When you're in the midst of those 10 days, or how about this? When you're afraid that a Babylonian army is going to bring reprisals against you and slaughter you, or Ishmael's going to knock at your door and slaughter you, every day seems like a lifetime. You better believe these people agonized over these 10 days. They couldn't believe that it took so long. Anyway, it happened after 10 days that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. I got to say one more thing about this. Nobody should misunderstand the nature of prophecy in God's prophets. This was not something Jeremiah could turn on and off as he pleased. Oh, you want a prophecy? Great, I'll hit the button. Prophesy. It didn't work like that, friends. He had to go to the Lord and get a word from the Lord. And if the Lord wasn't given it, the Lord wasn't given it. It it, it was not within his power to prophesy whenever he wanted to prophesy or to prophesy different. He had to listen to the Lord. And if the Lord didn't tell him for 10 days, then he didn't have anything to say for 10 days. Anyway, back to verse 7. And it happened after 10 days that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Then he called Jehanan, the son of Kareah, the captain of the forces which were with him, and all the people from the least even to the greatest, and said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your petition before him, if you will still remain in this land, then I will build you and not pull you down, and I will plant you and not pluck you up. For I relent concerning the disaster that I have brought upon you. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. Do not be afraid of him, says the Lord. For I am with you to save you and deliver you from his hand. And I will show you mercy, that he may have mercy on you and cause you to return to your own land. Ladies and gentlemen, isn't this dramatic? After 10 days, the answer comes. And what's the answer after 10 days? Jeremiah says, this is the word of the Lord. You trust God and stay right here. But, but, but we can't stay here. Nebuchadnezzar is going to wipe us out. The, the Ishmaels are going to wipe us out. What are we going to do? No. This is God's word. You trust him and stay right here. And God will protect you and bless you. And God will make you fruitful in this land. Verse 10. If you will still remain in this land, then I will build you and not pull you down. Verse 12. I will show you mercy. Isn't that spectacular? You want, you're seeking God? You want your answer? Here it is. Trust me, I promise to protect you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if Johanan and the remnant of Judah, if they were spiritual men and women, how would they have responded to this promise from Jeremiah? Hallelujah. We have God's promise of protection. 
All we got to do is obey what he says and stay right here in the land. And God promises he'll protect us. We do not have to sleep, go to bed at night, I should say, with one eye open, terrified of the Babylonians or the Ishmaels of the land. We don't have to worry about them because if we stay here and obey what God tells us to do, we are safe. That's how spiritual men and women would have responded. What do you think about this group? Verse 13, Jeremiah is still speaking. But if you say, we will not dwell in this land, disobeying the voice of the Lord your God, saying, no, but we will go up to the land of Egypt where we shall see no war, nor hear the sound of the trumpet, nor be hungry for bread, and there we will dwell. Then hear now the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, if you wholly set your faces to enter Egypt and go to dwell there, then it shall be that the sword which you feared shall overtake you in the land of Egypt. The famine of which you were afraid shall follow close after you in Egypt, and there you shall die. And so it shall be with the men who set their faces to go to Egypt to dwell there. There they shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence, and none of them shall remain or escape from the disaster that I will bring upon them. You know what the first thing I think when I read this? I think, poor Jeremiah. Forty years of delivering an unpopular message to people who didn't want to hear it, and now he has to do it again. Poor, you know, don't you think Jeremiah just, Lord, just once, couldn't I just tell them what they want to hear? Please, Lord, just once, just please, just once. God says, no, no, that's not the message I have. You got to deliver this. You got to tell them not only the promise that if they stay in the land, I will protect them. And you got to admit, that's a glorious, glorious promise. That's the beautiful promise. But you got to tell them the curse. And the curse is, if you disobey me, the Lord says on this one, what's going to happen? Look at verse 16. Then it shall be that the sword which you feared shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt. You are a dead duck if you go to Egypt and hope that God will protect you there. God will not protect you there. God will be against you there. It took faith in the word and the promise of God to say, we're going to stay put in Judah. But friends, we know it from the Bible. I know it from my life. I'm going to be bold enough to say that you probably know it from your life. Uh, Not that I never forget it. You probably forget it too sometimes. But don't we know from our own experience and from the scriptures itself that the absolutely safest place for us to be is in the center of God's will. You're in God's will, God will take care of you. Oh, we're not trying to say everything goes smooth, everything will go easy. No, there still may be catastrophe that strikes, but God will be with you in the midst of it. The safe place to be is in radical obedience to God. And this was the choice before them. Matter of fact, look how dramatic it is. Verse 18 For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as my anger and my fury have been poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so will my fury be poured out on you when you enter Egypt. And it shall be an oath, an astonishment, a curse, and a reproach if you see this place no more. You go to Egypt, I'm coming out after you, God says. We'll get to it in coming weeks. But I'm just struck by the 
unbelievable sadness of this. What did they do? Did they stay in Judah? Or did they go to Egypt? Ladies and gentlemen, they went to Egypt. It's as if they looked at God square in the face and said, I don't believe you. I have to fend for myself. You're not going to help me. No wonder God says, you shall be an oath, an astonishment, a curse, and a reproach. I like what Philip Ryken said about this. He said, the risky choice was perfectly safe while the easy way out was deadly. Verse 19. The Lord has said concerning you, Jeremiah is not done, by the way, speaking to these people. The Lord has said concerning you, O remnant of Judah, do not go to Egypt. Know certainly that I have admonished you this day. For you were hypocrites in your heart when you sent me to the Lord your God, saying, pray for us to the Lord God and according to all that the Lord your God says. And declare to us and we will do it. And I have this day declared it to you, but you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord your God or anything which he has sent you by me. Now therefore know certainly that you shall die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence in the place where you desire to go dwell. Friends, what a frightening line it is in verse 20. You were hypocrites in your hearts when you sent me to the Lord your God. Oh Lord, you, just tell me your will. Oh Lord, I just want to know your will. I just want to know your will. You know how you were kids, you'd cross your fingers behind your back, right? Oh Lord, I just want to know, just tell me your will, Lord, just whatever it is. God tells you, well, not really. I'm, I'm going to do what I want to do. I, I was just hoping you'd go along with me, then I'd feel better about what I'm going to do. Ladies and gentlemen, submission is never an issue in our life until we're confronted with something that we wouldn't normally do. If you submit to God when he happens to agree with what you want, that's not submission at all. Not on a human level or a divine level. No, they were hypocrites in their hearts. And therefore... Verse 22, know certainly that you shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence in the place where you desire to dwell. Adam Clark said, as you have determined to disobey, God has determined to punish. John Trapp said, in running from death, you'll only run to it. How's this going to unfold? We'll see next Wednesday night. But can we just close with this simple thought of how important it is to the very best of our ability to truly surrender ourselves and our will to God. You know, um, in a garden, there was a man who told God, not your will, but mine. And he took a fruit and plunged the human race into its fallen condition. There was a second Adam who went to a garden and said to God, not my will, but yours. And he won salvation for his people. Now, 
If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've surrendered your life to him, Jesus lives in you. Does he not? Jesus lives in you. So really, friends, I'm not even telling you to try harder to surrender. I'm telling you to seek Jesus and let his surrender live itself out through you. Father in heaven, that's our prayer. Lord, this this last chapter here, oh Lord, this hits home. Because we see ourselves in it so clearly, Lord. We see ourselves when we have been the hypocritical seeker of you. Where we sought you, Lord, just to approve what we already wanted. And if anything were to say different, we'd disregard it. God, please, we confess this before you and we ask that you forgive us it. And because Christ dwells in us, we ask, Lord God, that his surrendered, submitted nature unto you would live itself in us as well. We surrender to it and unto you. In Jesus' name, amen.